opportunities. We can't even tell you what you'll miss. There will be so many. Be a, a great time. The weekend of nine eleven, and uh, ongoing. There's some little yellow cards there as a reminder. Maybe you could put those on your windshield right in front of you as you're driving, so you don't forget. And no, I'm only kidding. Don't do that. So we are going to talk about fears. Last week, if you were here as we were working in the Servant King series through Mark, we talked about how faithfulness, a sense of religiosity, confidence in that, or um, I don't know, just living into our Christianity, often can frustrate our fear. Our own faithfulness can frustrate, excuse me, our faith. Our faithfulness can frustrate our faith, which is interesting. But also, for sure, and I think this is easier to get to, our fears can frustrate our faith. If we're aware of what happens... Fear is often the problem, and as we're moving through here, we're going to find out a lot more. Now, I asked the kiddos about their fears. There's two categories of fears, rational fears and irrational fears. What are some irrational fears? Zombies is one of them. That's a correct, that's a correct answer. What else are irrational fears? Spiders is actually an irrational fear. You recognize that, right? Think of the phobias. I know some of you grown are like, no, you're, well, you know, they're this big. They're tiny. We have ways to kill them. Uh, they don't run the world. What else? Phostrophobia? Claustrophobia. The fear of being in an enclosed space. And it's not rational, but it feels very real, doesn't it? Yeah, what else? Irrational fears. That's it? You got nothing? All the phobias. My favorite one is phobophobia which is afraid of being fearful. And that's somehow, you know how like when you have a mirror on this side, a mirror on this side, and you can see for eternity? I don't know how you get out of that loop. That's, a, that's got quantum physics in it, phobophobia. What are some rational fears? Man. Yes, financial success or failure. That is a rational fear. Good. What else? John, you're an insurance salesman. What is a rational fear? The election. Yes. Our polit- that has nothing to do with insurance. If you can insure something related to that, that'd be awesome. I was hoping you'd say car accidents or something. That's a rational fear. It's a very rational th- fear. But also the election and our political system as well as our government, there's some real fears rationally to be afraid of our own government at some levels. That is rational. What else? Other rational fears? Illness. Illness, yes. Sicknesses, cancer. I mean, those are legit, right? They really are legit fears. What else? Anything else? Say it. Fire. Goodness gracious, any of the great cosmic things. Have you realized how much more suffering has been caused in the universe purely because of entropy? Because of things breaking down. The volcano blows up. The tsunami comes in from the shore. Hurricane Katrina. That's not, that's nothing personal in that. Fire is another one that couldn't cause it. We've seen some amazing things in Colorado. Anything else you're dying to say? Or afraid to say? (laughs) Fear Fear of raising children. Right? That's what you meant. You meant the fear of raising children. Absolutely. That's a very legitimate fear. Now, Stefan, by the way, is about the coolest dude in the world. But I will tell you this story uh, his mom tells. Linda was here first service, tells a story of uh, when she was cooking. Stefan was a little kid. He was very afraid of the pantry. You know, 
the place where they keep the food. So she's making dinner, and she says to him, would you go into the pantry and get a can of tomato soup? And he's like, I don't want to go in there. I'm afraid you know that. I can't reach the light. You know, it goes on and on. She's like, no, you can go in there. Go in, go get the soup. So he starts to go over there, but he freaks out. He comes back, and finally she plays the spiritual card, and she says, if you go in there, Jesus will be with you. Okay, so he kind of goes over, and he's still afraid, and he peeks in, and just as he's about ready to go in, a thought dawns on him, and he says, hey, Jesus, can you hand me a can of tomato soup? <laughs> okay, that didn't really happen. But, <laughs> but fears are a real deal for us. They're a real deal. And they, uh, they affect us, and by the way, they frustrate faith. We're going to hear a lot about that in here. If you have a Bible on your phone or your iPad or whatever, turn to Mark. We're going to be in, start in chapter 3. Work several chapters here because we're trying to get this series done before we go to the amphitheater. So we're going to move along and kind of pick up pieces as we go. Mark chapter 3, we'll start around verse 12 in that area and try to pick up some things. We're going to camp a little bit at one famous parable, and we're also going to camp at the very end of this passage on a famous miraculous scenario. Uh, Let's go there. So I'll go back to about verse 6. It says, the Pharisees went out and began to plot. You remember, so there's this contrast of this uh, controversy that is growing. That's one of the primary things. You'll hear this controversy keep coming up as people are trying to figure out. Typically, their problems are either their own religiosity, they do not believe that they need to repent of anything, or their own fear because they don't have any idea who this guy is. You'll hear it. These are the last two series we've been talking through. Crowds follow Jesus. They come from all around the area in the north, up around the Sea of Galilee. Verse 13, the title in the NIV says the appointing of the 12 apostles. He's already chosen some of them, but now he fills out the group. It says that he chose the ones, he called to them the ones that he wanted. It's a very interesting phrase. It's got a sense of exclusion. You're going to see this exclusion coming up. It does. I want you to be thinking and processing that. Think about fear that can happen as a result of exclusion. And he sends them out with two jobs, the same thing he's been doing. Preach the word, preach the gospel, and deal with demons and problems and issues that people have. That's their job. That's ours. The title to verse 20, Jesus and Beelzebub, which is fascinating to put those two words together since Beelzebub is basically Satan himself, the uh, king demon. Now, he enters a house, he's teaching, his family shows up, verse 21, and they went in to take charge of him. They're going to grab Jesus. This is the ultimate in a, a, a intervention, family intervention, because he is literally crazy. That's what they say, he's out of his mind. Who does he think he is? And this is fascinating. His family is going to subvert what he's doing. Fear from his family. Why would they be afraid of what he's doing? Well, because there's potential great shame and even being kicked out of the synagogue and all kinds of consequences that are negative for them. And the teachers of the law. Now, last week when we looked at it, it was only the teachers of the law from the north who were involved in this scenario. Now they're showing up from Jerusalem because word has spread. We've got this maverick rabbi who's teaching random things and has has no business what he's doing. This moves on. Uh, obviously, Jesus says, well, how does Satan drive out Satan? That's ridiculous. 
President Lincoln grabbed this phrase and said, a house divided doesn't work, right? It tears itself apart. And then this is where the context is of this fascinating verse. Verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of eternal sin. Do you hear what the context is here? What the idea is? This is not just somebody who speaks a random word negatively about the Holy Spirit. This is truly someone who is assigning God's work through the Holy Spirit and assigning it to Satan, which is what all of these teachers of the law are doing. They're saying, no, 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 that's not God's work. They're standing where they're with their robes on in the synagogue saying, this is not the work of God. This is the work of Satan. And Jesus says, that is a line. When you get down that road, how do you turn around and come back off? How do you turn that one around? When you start to say with your procession and your profession, and you say, this is not God's work, this is Satan's work. That's what the context, this is not a random chance of just offending the Holy Spirit in some random way. Now, the next title, Jesus' Mothers and Brothers. So we still have the family showing up. They show up in another scenario. And this time, they don't even go into the house. They stand outside and call for him to come out. Because they figure if we get him away from those people, we can grab him and take him back to Nazareth. By the way, they have traveled a long way to get here to grab him and subvert what he's doing. And Jesus says the famous, who are my mothers and brothers and sisters and everyone? Who, are, who is my family? These people here who are not trying to undermine the work and the kingdom of God, developing a new people of God. This is my family. He doesn't disrespect them. He just says, I'm not going to let my family be my problem. A fear of my family frustrate my own faith or their fear of me frustrate my faith. Interesting. Again, by the way, as this plays out, as far as we know, the majority of them actually do come to faith in him, which is good news. Chapter 4 is, we're going to camp here a little bit, the parable of the sower, a famous parable. Now we're going to get into a section where there are four of these teaching contexts that also give us content of what Jesus was saying. So again, the same job. Not only is he dealing with issues and problems, but he's also teaching things as he goes. That's his primary deal. Again, Jesus is going to teach. He's by a lake. The crowd is so huge, they put him in a boat and push him out away so we can use the shoreline as the amphitheater. Fascinating. And he starts to teach them with many parables. Uh, We think of a parable, especially in the scripture, we think of a parable as a story that's got context that's typical for us, but it's got a secondary meaning. Sometimes that's allegorical. Sometimes it's just pretty obvious what is going on. But in this case, he teaches one they would be very familiar with. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell on the path. They didn't have, you know, nice big planters like we use back in the Midwest with these huge implements behind the tractor that have little, you know, protected units that drop one seed in the exact specific place. They're just scattering seed. You've seen pictures of that. And some of it falls on the path, and the birds come and eat it. Verse 5, some fell on the rocky places. It springs up quickly, dries out quickly because of the sun. Some falls among the thorns, verse 7, and the thorns grow up and choke it out before it can produce fruit. That's an important part of it. 
And the fourth kind falls in good soil. It comes up and it produces not just 10% more like they would have expected in their day, but 30, 60, even 100 times more. Now this is a, honestly, the people could be listening and saying, okay, we get that. What's he talking about? Or they could be listening behind, which is why Jesus then says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you have ears to hear? I mean, when you hear these things, do you, when you hear the things of God, when you read the scripture, when you encounter discussion about faith and who Jesus was, do you hear behind? Do you know how many theologians in church history did not have ears to hear? They came up with all kinds of other monkey business solutions as to why, oh, maybe the sun was shining in a different way, and this, these couldn't be real, these, these miracles that he did, and this was going on, and that was going on. Do you have ears? So the 12 come around, and they're like, so what's going on with these parables? And he says, verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Do you hear the in and the out of that? Do you hear the exclusion? There is exclusion going on here. There is a new people of God. It is not the formerly known as people of God, just the Jews because you were born ethnically into this group. In fact, it gets so big that Jesus is like, this is being almost protected from them. Now, I know a lot of people get tripped up right here in this whole scenario. And they go, wait, why would there be elect? Why would there be some people but not? Let me ask you this. If we look at the contract, covenant-oriented journey with God that man has been on, as far as we know, from the very beginning, there was a covenant set up in the garden There was a covenant set up with Noah. There was a covenant set up with Moses, with David. It goes on and on. And Jesus is coming to build a new covenant. Covenant inherently has a sense of specificity. It is specifically for someone. No offense to all of you, but 32, yes, 32 and a half, seems like 72 years ago, my wife and I got married And we like to say 32 years, about 17 of those happily. A couple of weeks here, a couple of months there, 15 minutes here. You know how it works, okay? That's just the reality. But so that many years ago, I made a covenant with Jenny Foster and not the rest of you people. I did. Was, Was that like something personal? Like I hate you as a result of that? Absolutely not. And in fact, what you know is true is because I made that covenant with her and have kept that covenant and she has been faithful to me, everybody benefits from that, right? The exclusional aspect of covenant. And Jesus is building a people because it will benefit everybody that there is a new people of God. Do not get offended. Do not use 21st century, all-inclusional, everybody should be tolerant and love everybody and everybody's okay sensibilities and apply it to this idea. This is the way it needs to work. So he explains 
the different things. If there's any group that's 21st century America, it's verse 19. The worries of the life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things came in and choked out the word. That's us. Three categories of people who literally are, the word is taken away, and one who produce fruit. That's 25% ratio. Does that mean Jesus was destined to be a failure? Not at all. Jesus was doing what we should do, which is cast the seed. He describes later, the key phrase in here is, what's the seed? The word of God. That's our job. Your job is not to convince people. Your job is genuinely to put the word out there, and if it falls on the ground, it's going to fall on the ground. That's not your problem. So he uses several other analogies here. A lamp on a stand. Do you light a, stand, a lamp and put it under a bucket? No. But some of the things that are hidden are meant to be disclosed, and some things are meant to be concealed but brought out into the open. He uses this paradoxical language. It's not for everyone. The parable of the growing seed this is what the kingdom is like. You scatter, the seed sprouts and grows. Well, you don't do anything to make the seed grow. It does that because that's how God made it to do. And it's God's business how the, the results are going to be. Don't let your fears of this frustrate your faith to where you say, well, I'm not going to tell people because they won't like it. Or I'm not going to tell people because they may not believe it. Or I'm not going to tell people because I'll sound like a crazy fool. Or I'm not going to see where our fears go. These are our reasonable, rational fears. But Jesus says, that's not what we're called to do any more than he was called to do. The mustard seed. Tiniest seed around. Here he's just hitting this theme of the seeds. And yet it grows like crazy because that's how God made it to be. I love verse 33. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. There's a, there's a qualitative limit there. As much as they could get. Then, verse 35, Jesus calms the storm. Right after this, they get in a boat. But this phrase is interesting because verse 36 says, there were other boats with him. I can imagine this armada of little uh, you know, fishing boats and everything else, anything people could get on, following Jesus and the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. And as they're going across, as would be common, the wind tears up and just comes in a crazy storm. Jesus is exhausted, so he's in the back of the boat asleep. And the disciples go to him like little third graders. <laughs> We're afraid. Jesus, why are you, don't you care about us? Won't you come up and don't you do you want us to die? I mean, unbelievable, the response. To the point where then Jesus calms the storm. They, of course, probably expected him to tell them how to navigate back to the shore. But no, he stops the storm and he says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have any faith at all? I want to tell you this. As a pastor walking along with people in different circumstances, probably our most rational fear is the fear of death. But I'm surprised often by how people are literally flummoxed by death. Christian people. People who know what the exchange is here. And often they're paralyzed. Not their own death. The death of others around them. 
And I'm not throwing rocks. I really am not because I don't understand is more of of what it's like. Because I think, where is the faith to trust God with what's going on? We'll see here in a minute that actually it's the worst scenarios like that when it's the best opportunity for us to not let our fear frustrate our faith, but actually step in through our fears into faith. And that's where it's actually the most legitimate. And of course, the people are afraid of him now because he stilled the storm. Who in the world is this guy? They go across the lake. I don't have time to, to, to develop this story, but it's fascinating because he comes into the region of the Gadarenes, and there's a man there who has been in such uh, horrific punishment from the demons that, are, that he's possessed by. He's living out in the catacombs, screaming, shrieking, running around naked, cutting himself. It's horrific. Jesus shows up on the shore and engages not afraid of the scenario. Talks to the demon. The demon tries to make itself look big by saying, oh, we're called legion. Legion in the Roman armies was 6,000 soldiers. So who do you think you are? And Jesus is like, you're going to go get in those pigs and get out of this man and leave him alone. 2,000 pigs that run off a cliff. So the people of, t- of the town hear about this encounter. That's a very short version of probably what took a pretty significant encounter. They start coming out from town. What the heck is going on out here? What happened to the pigs? You know, all of that. They're trying to figure it out. And they find the man who's been running around crazy. They find him seated, clothed, and in his right mind is the description. Fascinating. And they don't know what to do with this. So what do they do? The very next phrase, he's dressed, seated in his mind, and they were afraid, people. That's their response. Wait, what just happened here? This is a win, right? This is a victory. They're afraid, and their fear frustrates their faith. They don't even have a chance. So literally, Jesus has been there 15 minutes, and they say, would you please get back in your boat and get the heck out of here? We don't know who you are, but go away, take all your people with you. Unbelievable. The man, they beg him to go, is what the word is. The man comes and begs to go with, says to Jesus. You remember, he chose the disciples that he wanted. The man comes and says, let me come and be one of your guys. He's had no life, right? And Jesus says, no, here's what I'm going to do for you. I want to give you the assignment to go back and tell your story what just happened. Fascinating. And then the last passage, it's titled, uh, verse 21, titled of of chapter 5. A dead girl and a sick woman. And listen to how this thing plays out. He shows up at the next place, pulls up on the shore, and a synagogue ruler named Jairus comes, and he falls down at Jesus' feet and pleads with him earnestly. Now, what has the response of the synagogue leaders and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law been so far? Has it been good? Has it been faithful? Have they considered Jesus worthy of attention? Have they thought him to be authoritative? No, we know they're actually now to the place saying what he's doing, he's doing because he has power from the devil himself. This synagogue ruler has a different story. Why? Because my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her and heal her. 
Desperation changes the whole thing. Desperation changes the whole thing. It's the time to engage faith, not fear. Desperation is the time for faith, not fear. We often get confused in that, and we feel like, wait, I'm supposed to somehow be undone by this. No, desperation is the time for faith, not fear. So Jesus says, I'll come with you. And as he's walking through the crowd, a woman comes up who's been bleeding for 12 years. This is vaginal. This is creating her to be an outcast from the society. She is unclean. She can't be a part of anything to do with her worship of God. She is literally a pariah in the culture. But she says, I've heard about this Jesus, and if I can come up behind and just touch his cloak, his clothes, I'll be healed. So she accomplishes this job. And then it says, fascinating, Jesus feels power go out of him, which is fabulous. I don't even know what that would be like. And he turns around and says, Who touched me? And of course, the disciples are like, everybody touched you. You're in a huge crowd. There's people all around you. What do you mean? Who touched you? And he's like, no, I mean, somebody specific touched me and something just happened, but I didn't have a chance to engage with this fully. And he looks. Now, you remember last week when he was looking at the Pharisees before he healed the man with the curled hand? And he was looking with disgust and with anger and with a sense of, who do you people, do you not see what's going on here? This look is a different look. It's intense, but it's one, I want to find you. I want to find, who was it? Who was it? Uh, I make eye contact with you. She comes forward, and in fear and trembling, it says, she tells him the whole story. And Jesus says to her, daughter. That word doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but I want to tell you what that meant to her. For 12 years, she has been outside, passed off, kicked around. She has spent all of her money. She has been in suffering at every level for 12 years. And Jesus bestows upon her, daughter of Jerusalem, daughter of Zion, one of the valued ones. I don't know if you know the story of the Fille du Roi, the women that came from France when they settled Canada. As they were trying to build in the 1700s, Canada, the, the French didn't have enough women to literally build a li- living colony. So the king put out word in France and said, any woman, any story, any back history, any scenario, if you come, will overcome your fear of going to the new world and get in a boat and go over. You will become a fidua, a daughter of the king. And you're legitimized at the highest level. You will get to go and choose your husband, which never happened in that time frame. You will get to pick the best land, the place where you want to live. If you have illegitimate sons, daughters, people, family with you, bring them with. That man is forced by law to adopt and legitimize all of the people, no questions asked. And today there's still a beautiful monument to the Fidewa because had they not gone, overcome their fear, and moved into Canada, we may not have Canada as we know it. This woman receives it. Jesus says to her, not only 
Are you a daughter, but your faith is healed here? You go in peace. Be freed of what you've experienced. Spectacular. And as he's finishing the words, the people from the house come up where the daughter is sick and say, she's dead. She's gone. I mean, this contrast is unbelievable. So Jesus says to Jairus, because they're saying, you know, just send the teacher home. This doesn't make any sense. Send him home. And Jesus says to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't let your fear frustrate and inhibit and undermine your faith. So they go to the house. You know the story, how it proceeds. There's people everywhere making all the noise, mourning. Jesus says, you know, don't worry about it. She's just asleep, which he's not lying. This is a euphemism that was common for them. He's planting a little bit of seed of uncertainty, by the way, which is okay, as he does with all the parables. And the people start laughing. They're like, you don't know what you're talking about. And, and so he goes into the house, throws everybody out of the house, except for his inner circle of disciples and the family. And he walks up to this woman who is, by the way, a 12-year-old young girl. Interesting scenario. You've got 12 years of pain and suffering for this woman and now the 12-year-old who is right on the cusp of becoming an adult, fertile woman in her culture. That would be the expectation. And they're going to lose her at that age. She's dead on the bed. And Jesus touches her. He has now touched a woman with an issue of blood. So he would be unclean as a rabbi with weeks of work to do to re-clean and cleanse himself. And now he touches a dead body, which is even worse. But he overcomes because he says, my compassion, my love is so great. I'm going to touch. And he picks her hand and he says to her, get up. And she does. And of course, they're flabbergasted. Do you hear this, what's going on? Do you hear the scenario of the fears, legitimate fears? But the fears don't have to rule the scenario. They don't have to be the final word. Fear does not have to frustrate faith. Jesus has now built this thing as a servant king. Do you hear the servant I mean, willing to touch and find the woman and and finish the job by telling her, you are an accepted and loved and beloved daughter of Zion. Go into the house, finishing that job. Encountering the man with the demons, all of the work that he does in great compassion. And at the same time, with authority and the controversy grows. Next week, as we hear, um, the section will say, a prophet without honor, because Jesus will go back to his home, and the people in his own home will reject him and throw him out. This is some kind of journey, isn't it? I encourage you right now to consider your fears. What are they? We all have them, so this is not something that is, I'm trying to isolate or you should feel isolated and set apart from everyone else. If we were honest, every one of us has them, just like these people had them. But what fears, what kind of barriers do they create that actually get in the way of your faith? Not faith in something that's a ridiculous, like in spite of evidence, 
There's plenty of evidence. Faith in God to say God knows what he is doing. Later, Peter will write. We know that these are the memoirs of Peter. And it's pretty interesting what Peter writes and how we we miss sometimes what he said. In chapter 3, he says this. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. Now, when I just said that, you didn't like it. But listen to what he says to do. Be faithful so that you might win over your husband who may not believe. Win him over without words. He'll see your purity, your reverence, your beauty of your inner self. And that, that's such of great value and worth in God's sight. Why are we bothered by this? In fact, he ends it with daughters. You are the daughters of God. Daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Fear is why we're bothered. Husbands are in the same boat. Be considerate, respectful. Treat your your wife as an heir with you. Nothing will hinder your prayers. Why wouldn't we want to behave this way? Because of fear. All of you live in harmony, be sympathetic, love each other as brothers, be compassionate, humble, bless each other instead of giving evil so that you can inherit a blessing. And who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer what is right, you're blessed. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for you of the reason for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and respect. Why wouldn't we want this? We let our fears frustrate our faith to where we hear words that we don't like and postures we don't like, and we reject the whole thing outright rather than hearing the beauty of this. Absolute value for everyone. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and are learning more of you as we study this, the first gospel. And we ask you to continue to point out things for us. Help us to identify our fears. Help us to be able to see where our fears have become blockades. There have become frustrations that hinder our faith. Help us to... uh, Be honest with ourselves and with you. And then in the greatest times of fear, the greatest desperation, may we turn to you rather than blame you or do all the crazy things that we do. May we turn to you, come to you, and may we choose the harder path, put ourselves underneath, be the servants that you were, but with the authority of knowing it's your job that you're doing, your kingdom you're bringing, your people that you're building. Thank you, Lord. These are amazing things for us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If the uh, ushers would come, we will receive an offering as an opportunity for worship.